today on Reparations in Action. The fact that we as white people live at the expense of African, indigenous, and oppressed peoples of the world who make up the majority of the planet with us as a tiny minority of the human population. We believe that reparations is key to solving any problems in the world today. Complete violation of so-called international law, which of course means nothing to U.S. imperialism whatsoever. You're listening to Reparations in Action here on Black Power 96.3. You're listening to the White Lies Shattered podcast and FM radio show. My name is Jamie Simpson, and I am the host of White Lies Shattered, which broadcasts weekly on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. White Lies Shattered, also known as Reparations in Action, is a program of white solidarity with black power. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. We want to begin by saluting Chairman Omali Eshetela and the African People's Socialist Party for leading the African Revolution and for developing the theory of African internationalism, the theory and worldview of the African working class that guides the African revolution, and which we credit for all the understandings and analysis provided on this podcast. As always, we'd like to also salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast weekly. Black Power 96 is not just explaining the world, but changing it. You can get the app for Black Power 96 on Google Play or the Apple App Store and listen wherever you are located. Today's episode features an interview with Ron Gochez, political secretary for Union del Barrio. Ron is based in Los Angeles. Union del Barrio is an anti-colonial revolutionary indigenous Mexican organization with long-standing fraternal ties to the African People's Socialist Party. Union del Barrio uh, website, uniondelbarrio.org, says, we have set ourselves the goal of building a people's organization capable of promoting and defending the human rights and class interests of La Raza within current U.S. borders, end quote. We spoke with Secretary Gochez about the deepening crisis in the wake of the leaked white nationalist or anti-African statements, some really foul statements made by four elected officials in Los Angeles. Three of these officials have resigned, but as of this recording, October 24th, one, Kevin DeLeon, has still refused to step down from the city council in Los Angeles. Before we go to that interview, we will hear from co-hosts of White Lies Shattered, African People's Solidarity Committee Chairwoman Penny Hess, and Uhuru Solidarity Movement Chair Jesse Neville, who will give us an update on and discuss the significance of the Hands Off Uhuru, Hands Off Africa campaign, which is a response to the vicious FBI attacks on the African People's Socialist Party of July 29th of this year, 2022. The following conversation was recorded at the Uhuru Solidarity Center in St. Louis, Missouri on October 21st. We want to sum up the annual Days of Reparations Tour this year, uh, which had the theme Hands Off Uhuru, featuring Chairman Omali Shatawa, who is our leadership, and he's the leader of the Uhuru movement, 
just and this was just following and subsequent to a very brutal FBI attack on the chairman, on Deputy Chair Onizanea Chatella, and on the Uhura movement as a whole, including the Uhura Solidarity Movement. So, Jesse, great to have you here. Great to be here. Great to be here, Chairwoman Penny. And yes, this tour uh, that you're talking about, the Days of Reparations to African People tour, this year was incredibly powerful because, as you mentioned, it was held in the context of the hands-off Uhuru, hands-off Africa counter-offensive campaign that the African People's Socialist Party is waging to push back, to fight back against the vicious attacks that were carried out by the U.S. government through the FBI against the Uhuru movement, against the leadership of the party, against Chairman Omali Shatella and Deputy Chair Onizaneya Shatella on July 29th when the FBI raided the homes and offices of seven separate locations of the Uhuru movement, including the home of Chairman Omali Shatella and Deputy Chair, where they came in violently, came through the door with battering rams, and before handcuffing both the chairman and deputy chair, pointed assault rifles at the chairman, aimed their laser sights on his chest, blew up flashbang grenades in their home, smashed through windows, deployed drones, had armored vehicles, and this was just the beginning of a deepening escalation of counterinsurgency against the anti-colonial struggle of African people represented by the leadership of Chairman Amalia Shatella. And as the chairman himself summed up, it was really important and significant for this tour to happen just in a matter of months after this attack took place. Uh, the Days of Reparations tour was merged with an overall hands-off Uhuru tour. So all together, it included stops in Oakland, California, Portland, Oregon, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Newark, New Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Here, it culminated with the March for Reparations to African People, where uh, with the chairman, under the leadership of the party, white people and others who came out to support the African People's Socialist Party marched down the highly visible Grand Boulevard here in South St. Louis, chanting, who's the biggest terrorist in the world today, the FBI and the CIA. So this was really important and a testament to the incredible, courageous and relentless leadership of Chairman Amalia Shatella. And there was a lot of great response on the streets yes. and people were honking. They were. People were honking, putting their windows down, throwing their fists up. Very was, powerful. It was. Very powerful for there to be white people marching in solidarity with African people. And, you know, I think it's so important for people and, you know, people listening to the show to hear about what the FBI and its COINTELPRO program, among many other things, have done to African people who are struggling for their liberation. And, you know, my and, and yours, you know, our awareness of this, our understanding comes from being organized mm -hmm. under the leadership of the African Revolutionary Movement and Chairman Omali Shatella, you know, who have to shake us mm -hmm. as white people to, to really, you know, just come down mm -hmm. off of the, the lies and the myths and the fabrications that and the narrative that we set up, you know, ourselves about ourselves in relationship to everybody else on the planet Earth. And also the material basis of that is that we sit on the backs of mm -hmm. African people. There's this pedestal, as the chairman says, and the, under that pedestal, the foundation of the pedestal are African, indigenous and oppressed peoples. 
and we sit on top of that. So even when we have a contradiction with our, our ruling class, then we solve that problem still sitting on that, on that pedestal instead of really standing in solidarity with the leadership of the anti-colonial struggle that is going to tear down that whole pedestal. But I think that, you know, just looking back at what COINTELPRO was, what, and it was much more than the FBI, but what this assault on the black revolution of the 1960s was, I mean, it, it murdered African leaders in such an incredibly brutal way. It arrested political prisoners or made African leaders into political prisoners, some of whom are, are still in prison today. And, and the government put in infiltrators and provocateurs and, and people who were there trained to disrupt and tear down and destroy organization, which is really key to the revolutionary movement and to um, you know, create rifts between different sectors of the African movement and also you know, with, between Africans, Mexicans, and other people. That's, that's something that, that they have done. Um, and they've also worked to discredit the leaders of the African Revolution in the 60s and, and to just put out lies about them, create disinformation, and uh, having the stated you know, goal to discredit them in the eyes of their base, in the eyes of the African, African community, but also in the eyes of, of white people and other people around the world. Mm-hmm. So this is you know, what, what is happening. Um, and tell us a little bit about the significance of this, this period and well, this attack. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying, um, this, this is nothing new. Uh, and much of it that happened in the 1960s and since then was done in secrecy. This time, they announced that this was the FBI. Um, it was practically in broad daylight uh, at some of the locations. They came at 5 a.m. pre-dawn and were there, you know, six hours. And one thing that's important to understand is that this attack has not ended it's not that an attack took place on July 29th and that the significance of it is that windows were broken and mm-hmm. things were stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened on July 29th is that the FBI made their, uh, their presence known, but it didn't start that day and it didn't end that day. And despite how brutal these raids were, no one in the Uhura movement was charged or arrested, despite the mm-hmm. fact that people were handcuffed. Nobody was arrested. Right. But four people were named as unindicted co-conspirators in an absolutely ridiculous and bogus indictment that was issued by the Department of Justice that same day uh, that was used to justify the raids. In fact, that morning, the FBI agents told the chairman, you're going to see this on the news because they're going to be unsealing an indictment. This indictment was not of anyone in the Uhura movement. It was of a Russian man mm-hmm. who lives in Russia. So not somebody who was facing arrest or anything like that. And everything in the indictment, everything in the warrants was absolutely bogus and flimsy. And frankly, as the chairman has pointed out, incredibly offensive and insulting yes. to African people yeah. to assert that it could not possibly be that African people would 
be able to lead and, and push forward their own struggle against the conditions that they face under the U.S. colonial state, that it would have to be Russians telling Chairman O'Malley or Shatella to charge the United States with the crime of genocide against African people, even though that's something that the party and the chairman have been raising literally since the inception of the African People's Socialist Party. So it's, it's completely offensive. And But they did take a lot of stuff. They took a, phones, computers, devices, hard drives, files. And what they're doing right now is working to concoct a case against the African People's Socialist Party and against the chairman. And we're very committed to do our task under the leadership of the party to build a massive movement in the white community in defense of the right of African people to advocate and organize for their liberation and to, to say hands off or fruit, to say to the, the U.S. government that they cannot put a finger on Chairman O'Malley Shatella or any of the other leaders of this movement. Yes, I mean, this is such an outrage. And, you know, when we look at it, we look at, OK, Steve Bannon got four months right. in probably, you know, a designer prison exactly. where they can play um, tennis or mm-hmm. whatever. and. Yep. And have computers and continue to play the stock market or whatever else it is they're doing. And African people are murdered and, yeah. and, and put in prison for life. Right. I mean, there are thousands of children, mm-hmm. mostly African children, who've mm-hmm. been sentenced to 30 years to life in wow. U.S. prisons. And yeah. it's a you know, complete violation of so-called international law, which mm-hmm. of course means nothing to U.S. imperialism whatsoever, and this this is the system that's built on on assaulting people, on kidnapping and conquest and enslavement and genocide and rape and human trafficking and forced labor and pushing people out of their homeland and stealing it and kidnapping them and selling babies and sexual assault and all of these things. This is heart and drug addiction, forced drug addiction. That's what that's what capitalism and and Europe and you know and the US is built on. And the chairman Chairman O'Malley Shatella always says that there wouldn't be an America without slavery and genocide. It's not a sideline thing. It's not peripheral to to what this is. It, it is the DNA. And it's the African People's Socialist Party and Chairman O'Malley Shatella, who have fought for 50 years and more for freedom and justice and reparations and liberation of, of African people and to liberate Africa out of the grip of the colonial exploitation that ravages it today and forces the majority, 80% of, of Africans on the continent of Africa, forced to live on $5.50 a day and to to raise up that no one in the world should be oppressed, no people should be oppressed, nobody should live sucking the blood of somebody else and trampling on their backs in order to to, uh, get fatter and fatter and everything that we want. And that violence, colonialism oppression has to go. It has to be. And this is what Chairman O'Malley should tell and the party represents. This is good. This is, this is what is considered by the majority of the people on the planet Earth on 
as a good thing, not mm -hmm. criminal. Only, only uh, this criminal enterprise called the colonial mode of production or colonial capitalism mm -hmm. would see this, what the party represents as criminal. Right. Because they are the criminals. Right. So, yeah, so this is, I unite with you, you know, it is really important that there was a white solidarity organization and movement under the leadership of the African Revolution, of the, the African People's Socialist Party, the organization by and for the African working class, and that we were here on the south side of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. They had to raid this building, um, and they couldn't do in darkness mm -hmm what they're used to doing to um, to African people who are fighting for their freedom. So I agree with you. We are building a movement that is saying absolutely not, you know, you cannot touch mm -hmm. a hair on the head of Chairman Omali Chattel and the leaders of the Uhura movement. And if you want to find out more about this struggle and, and this campaign, to push back this vicious assault, go to handsoffuhuru.org. So Jesse, tell us about the tour. The tour uh, was an incredible outpouring of support for the party and for Chairman Amali Shatella. Every single stop of the tour, there were pe people who came in, sometimes who flew in from other cities to see the chairman speak and to show their support, to unite behind the party in defense of the party against this attack and to literally embrace the chairman and thank him for his courage and his leadership of the worldwide African revolution. And it was very, very powerful. And one of the things that the tour was mobilizing for is the Black People's March on the White House that the Black is Back mm -hmm. Coalition is holding in Washington, D.C. on November 4th and 5th. And that's something that you can find more information about at blackisbackcoalition.org, where the Black is Back Coalition, under the leadership of Chairman Amalia Chatella, is hosting its 14th annual March on the White House under the theme, Hands Off Uhuru, Hands Off Africa. And there were people on every stop of the tour interested in coming to, to march on the White House this year. It's going to be very, very important for there to be thousands of people out there uh, demanding hands off Uhuru, hands off Africa, hands off Chairman Omali Chatella. Yes, yes. Very exciting. Really looking forward to that. Very exciting. Thank you for that report and Uhuru. Uhuru. And now we go to Jesse Neville and Penny Hess talking to political secretary of Union de Barrio, Ron Gochez, out of Los Angeles. This interview was recorded on October 21st, 2022. Now, I'm very honored to bring on Ron Gochez, who is the political secretary from Union de Barrio in Los Angeles. Uhuru, greetings, Ron. Greetings, comrades. Thank you for the invitation. It's always an honor to be here uh, speaking with you, comrades. It's an honor to have you. And before we go into talking about the situation that's just been in the news quite a bit for the last few weeks, about the city council members in uh, Los Angeles. Tell us a little bit about Union de Barrio, about, about yourself. I know you ran, you ran for office before in, in LA, I remember that. So tell us a little bit about, 
about yourself and about Unión del Barrio. All right. Um, well, the organization Unión del Barrio uh, was founded in 1980 in San Diego, uh, California, right near the really close to the border with Mexico. Uh, in 1980, for our community, that's a very significant time period because, um, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, we had strong movements on this side of the border, the Chicano movement and, and movements like that, where our community was pretty politicized, very active, combative, uh, you know, fighting for self-determination. By the 80s, though, uh, throughout the late 70s and then by the 80s, <clears throat> you know, COINTELPRO did a number on our community, just like it did the Black community, the American Indian community, and, and many others. And so a lot of the, the, the freedom fighter organizations had either been completely just either uh, neutralized, wiped out, imprisoned, by, by whatever means, uh, the movement was, was, was debilitated. And so by 1980, when the organization starts, the, the spirit of the group then, I mean, I wasn't there, I, I wasn't even born yet, but um, knowing the comrades, some of the comrades who started the organization, the idea was to bring back a, a strong organization that represented that, that revolutionary line from south of the border, uh, going all the way back to the times of colonization and our fight against the colonial powers of Spain and others, uh, fighting for, for you know, true freedom and liberation. So when the organization is started, it's trying to bring back that revolutionary political line and so it was a difficult time to do that because the Reagan administration had just taken over and they were, um, they were uh, coining the term Hispanic and they were trying to make that what they call the decade of the Hispanic. Pretty much in our community, you know, forget the struggle, forget the movement that failed, that didn't work. Just join the system, uh, you know, uh, probably become a Democrat or something like that. And a lot of people in our community, unfortunately, did fall for that. And so at that time, I think it was a tough time for the organization to begin. But the people who started it, comrades like Ernesto Bustillos and others, uh, they were steadfast and they, they continued moving forward and they laid the, seed, laid the seeds of what is today the organization. And um, I'm, you know, obviously proud to be a member of the organization. Uh, I joined it when I was in college at San Diego State. And um, <clears throat> about me a little bit, I'm, uh, professionally, I'm a teacher. That's what I do. That's how I pay my bills. Um, a high school history teacher, and I love what I do. I would do it for free if I didn't have bills, but I do have bills. <laughs> so yeah, um, but that's what I do for a, for a living. But obviously, politically, I'm a member of Unión del Barrio. Uh, I'm the vice president of the South Central Neighborhood Council, also a vice president of the Zapata King Neighborhood Council. Neighborhood councils are uh, kind of like many city councils in the city of LA. We have a, a neighborhood council system, and those neighborhood councils just represent our immediate neighborhoods where we where we live, uh, they are elected positions. And um, about a year ago, we, we ran what we called a black and brown power slate. And so we got people from our community, you know, African and indigenous people running together to build power. And so we ran people for three different neighborhood councils here in the South Central LA area. And we won, uh, I think of the 10, the 10 people on our slate, we won all but one position. So, uh, you know, now, now, you know, a couple or a year later, all this stuff with the city council, now that we're on these boards, now we're the, the, the neighborhood councils putting out these positions, denouncing the situation and the people who made these comments. So uh, it's come full circle and we're using these positions to speak out and advocate for our people and to denounce the people that need to be denounced. And what is the relationship of the neighborhood councils to the city council? Is there a direct relationship there? That's a really interesting question. There is. The, actually, the neighborhood council process began in L.A. after the, the uprisings of 1992. And so because the black and brown communities rose up, uh, you know, against the system in 1992 after the, 
the, the brutal beating of uh, Rodney King, the city wanted to create a way that would increase so-called community engagement or civic activity or something like that. And so they created these neighborhood councils, which were are, are funded by the city. Um, and the purpose of them is to, at least in the eyes of the city, for groups to kind of do like community cleanups and things of that nature. They never intended for political groups like us to get involved and to use that space and the funding. It's not a ton of money. I think we get 30, 32 or $35,000 a year uh, to do community programming. And so the, the neighborhood councils now, they serve as an advisory uh, board to the neighborhood councils. And it used to be that if three neighborhood councils in the city passed the same resolution, that item would automatically be put on the table of the city council. But when we came in and took over some of these councils and started doing that, all of a sudden the city policy changed and they don't do that anymore. <laughs> wow, they're scared. Oh yeah, they, they saw they saw that black and brown people started taking these positions and it wasn't the typical small, like, you know, um, neighborhood associations or like uh, small business groups. It was, you know, community people like us. And uh, we were using these positions and, and these resources to, to do something for the people. That is very interesting. I had never heard that. I, I didn't realize that about Los Angeles. So very interesting. But one, based on the incredible uprisings of the communities in 1992 after Rodney King, that's... That's really, really interesting to hear. And I really appreciate that background. So yeah, so that leads right into this October 9th exposure of three members of the LA City Council making these these statements and just the just the outrage that that has sparked. And like I said, I know that one of them resigned and apparently two of them refused to, but just tell us about this. Tell us some more about about the situation. Yeah, in, in many ways, it's a, it's a disgusting situation everywhere you look at it. But in another way, it's a great situation because it exposed, it exposed these neoliberals, it exposed these petty bourgeois uh, so-called leaders in the community that we have for years been saying that they don't represent the, our, our, our community. Obviously, they don't represent the working class. They represent their own self-interest. And so I think this situation um, where they had what they thought to be a private conversation between them and now obviously became very public, we see how they really feel. We see publicly um, what their intentions were. And I think that what people are missing um, in the big picture of this conversation, because, you know, some of the comments that were made were so nasty and so vile that it's easy to, to focus on those like the racist and the uh, the, you know, the comments against African people, against indigenous people. But some pe people are forgetting the whole pr the whole purpose of this conversation that they had was the redistricting of the boundaries here in Los Angeles. And the purpose was to redraw the lines to guarantee their reelection. That was the whole point of it. It was about political power that they yeah. will keep. Um, in Los Angeles, these people make $206,000 a year as city council members. And if they, they finish out their terms, they keep that pension for life. And so this is a, a very uh, lucrative, um, lucrative political positions that these uh, petty bourgeois people want to get. And so on, on the 9th, when this came out, I think what we as Union and many other organizations and, and movement here in, in the LA area have been saying for years that these people don't represent us, 
they gave us the, the, the greatest bit of evidence of that with these awful statements that they were making. Um, and so since we heard what they said about African people calling a two-year-old child, comparing them to a monkey, uh, you know, saying that in specifically speaking about indigenous people, saying that they're ugly and where did, what village did they come from? You know, it, it, it was, it was crazy because as a teacher, I teach ethnic studies and we were just going over the concept of colonization and the colonized mind and self-hatred. And then this hits the, the news where you have brown people making these statements about other either African people or other people of color, indigenous people. And it just showed, you know, that their, their nature of, of uh, people being colonized, that their mindset is one of self-hate is one of uh, attacking their own community and trying to work for themselves. So I think that, you know, one of the things that people we've been seeing is that people, you know, some people in the African community are saying, you see, you see, that's why we can't, we shouldn't do this black and brown unity stuff because that, that's how they really feel. But what we have to say is that these people, these three council members who made these awful uh, statements, they don't represent the brown community. They are brown, they are from our community, but their interest does not represent our interest as a people. Their interest represents themselves. And I don't think their interest is very different from the rest of the council members that are there. I think the main difference between these council members, these three council members, and specifically I'm talking about Nuri Martinez, who was a president of the, the city council, uh, Gil Cedillo and Kevin De Leon, the difference between them and the rest of the council really is that they got caught. They got caught and that's why they were exposed. But if we look at the rest of the stuff, that the other city council members, which the great majority of them are Democrats, um, we see that they also don't don't work on um, don't work on behalf of the, of the interests of the masses of the people, and that's what we're seeing in cities like Los Angeles, which I re I recently read, read an article saying that LA is the sixth uh, richest city on the planet. We also are the homeless capital of the United States, and we have you know like incredible uh, disparity when it comes to wealth. When it comes to social power, uh, it, it's very so apparent. And so this situation, I say it's great in a way because it has exposed the system. It's exposed the system. Now we're saying that we absolutely want these people to resign. Nuri Martinez, she she was the one that said the nastiest comments. She did the right thing and she resigned. She had to. And now we're seeing Kevin De Leon, who put out a statement, I think yesterday, saying he's not going to resign. Um and so we have to com continue to combat these people, to denounce these people. You know, as indigenous people ourselves, we have the responsibility to, to call these people out and to say that they don't represent us and to stand with the African community uh, and any community who is attacked by these people because that's the right thing to do. And, you know, as working people, we need to unite. We need to stick together. And that's what the black and brown power work that, you know, the African People's Socialist Party, Union del Barrio, and many other organizations have done for so many years uh, that's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to build and not let these, these I don't even want to call them clowns because, you know, the, these despicable people, um, their comments can cause problems in our community, but it's our job to make sure that that doesn't happen and that we continue to build, uh, you know, positive relationships and build towards real uh, power for our communities. Because that's what it's all about. Um, and so... Right now, that struggle continues. People are protesting to demand the resignation of these uh, two remaining city council members. And before I forget, I don't want to let this one off the hook. Um, the fourth person in that conversation on the audio, uh, Ron Herrera, 
this guy was a president of the LA uh, County Federation of Labor. So basically, and so he represents over, I think, 600,000 workers. And so this showed the clear corroboration, the corruption, the, the, the disgusting relationship between the leadership of the Democratic Party and the leadership of organized labor. Not the workers, not the rank and file, but the leadership of organized labor. And these people, we've been saying it for years that they're in bed with the enemy, they're in bed with the Democratic Party. And this discussion was proof of that. So now, you know, once we get rid of these two next uh, city council members, because we will eventually, now we have to remind our community that, you know, we have to mature. We can no longer continue to support or vote for people because they look like us or because they try to sound like us or because they say they come from the same place that we do. No, we have to vote for people who actually represent the interests of the masses of the working class people. And um, I think that this moment right now is when more than ever, uh, when we can do that and the people are listening to us. So we have a lot of work to do and we, uh, we continue to, to do it. Wow, great. In analysis. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very, very powerful. And you, you touched on some of this uh, already, uh, Ron, but uh, this question of the attempts, that this aspect of the counterinsurgency to assault the unity and sow disunity between African and Mexican people. Given the demographics of Los Angeles, it seems like this is clear evidence of that. Uh, could you speak a little bit more to this aspect of of the counterinsurgency to attempt to destroy any unity between anti-colonial struggles and colonized peoples. Yeah, I mean, I think this uh, this type of uh, of, uh, of attitude of like black versus brown and brown versus black, we see that a lot in in the petty bourgeois, the petty bourgeoisie who they're fighting um, each other in, in that class because they're trying to be the the top capitalist in the city, kind of a thing, and the working people like. We're so beat down, you know, by capitalism and, and having to work two and three jobs and barely being able to pay the rent in the city where it's so expensive that we don't have time for stuff like that. And so this uh, this long, long, uh, you know, attempt of divide and conquer from the colonizer over colonized people, unfortunately, that still works. And, you know, and, and a lot of people in our communities fall for that. And so our job um, is to try to inform the people of, of how we're, they're trying to pit us against each other and how black and brown people, we say, obviously have a lot more in common um, than we do different. And in fact, you know, when we talk about working class, we got it. We have to unite with all working class people because we should have the same enemy. And that's, that's a capitalist, you know, the elite class. And so this has been up for so many years in our communities, whether it's in the, inside the prisons with their, you know, pitting us against each other, like in gladiator fights inside the prisons led by prison guards, whether it's on the streets and, and, and street gang stuff that's been infiltrated and influenced by Cointel Pro type, you know, programs, or whether it's our political movements that we know, whether it was the Panthers or the Brown Berets or, you know, many other places where it was literally directly the Cointel Pro and the counterintelligence agency that uh, that's going to do everything in their power to derail, defeat, or annihilate our movements. And so today uh, we're seeing that, you know, the, Brown people are doing the dirty work of, of white power, of the white power system, where you have three brown people who are plotting and scheming to basically disenfranchise black people and their vote and their, and their political power, although it doesn't really represent political power because it's like the black Democratic Party. Um, so it's not power for the masses of the African people, but power for, you know, I guess the petty bourgeois. 
Um, so we see that what they were trying to do in this uh, meeting was to try to take power away from black people, not to give it to the brown community, but to give it to themselves. And that's super important to understand for both brown and black people, because I don't want anyone to think that they actually represent the interest of the Mexican or brown or indigenous or whatever you want to call it community. Because if you look in our city now and you go to most of our communities where, where our people live, they're the most you know, impoverished or the poorest. Where I work, where I live in the ninth district, um, it's the poorest district in the city of Los Angeles, where in the neighborhood where I teach, the average uh, family income, uh, the median household income is about $30,000. Um, now in Los Angeles, I don't know how people survive because it's over $2,000 here for uh, the average two-bedroom apartment. It's really expensive. And so these people, when they, when they made these comments, they weren't fighting for the interests of brown people. They were fighting for themselves selfishly. Uh, you know, uh, in, in Spanish, we have a term, sin vergüenza. That means a person with no shame, just like a gutless person with absolutely no shame who's willing to, to move and operate in that way. And for I know, I know people are going to be listening to this from all over you know, the country, all over the world, really. Um, you know, one of these council members we're talking about, Kevin De Leon, he ran for mayor. He ran for mayor. Luckily, he didn't win. But these are the type of people that leadership, even for at the city level, um, and it's disgusting. And we see that the, we, I mean, obviously, as you know, comrades here, we understand the role of the Democratic Party, and they're not the solution to our problems. And in cities like all across the United States, the, most, the biggest cities across the United States are almost all ran by Democrats. And we see the, the serious and stark contradictions where you have black, brown, Asian uh, you know, city council members. We have LGBT city council members. We have all the oppressed groups represented on these city councils. But what have they done for us? We still see mass poverty, mass homelessness, and, and even, you know, even increasing homelessness. We see so many social ills that we, we, we have to start our community has to start seeing that it doesn't matter that we have people who look like us, quote unquote, representing us on city council. Their interest is not us. Their interest is is white power and the white power system. And I think these these three individuals at the city council were exposed for for doing just that. Um, and so we have to continue to work, not just to get rid of them, because we say like we can get rid of these three, and they'll be replaced by three other who look exactly the same, speak the same, claim to speak uh, to represent us, but obviously we, we know that they won't. So this is a moment where we have to, um, you know, like like the party is done in places like in St. Louis and in St. Pete and many other places where you run candidates, real candidates that represent the interests of the people. And it's, it's, it's beautiful to see that because you start to see the system starts to shake because they see, you know, truth is coming at them. They don't know what to do. Um, and so we have to use, you know, we have to use electoral politics as just another tool in our toolbox to fight the system, not thinking ever that we're going to vote our way to freedom. But it, it is a tool. It is a tool to be used that can win over ma some of the masses of the people to our side. And I think we have to continue to do that. Yes, absolutely. You know, the real taking taking of power and putting out a platform that that, it, that, like you say, represents the masses of the, the working class, the colonized working people, and exposes this neo-colonial, you know, sham that's out there selling out the people every day. So that, that is really powerful, great work. And 
you know, I just wanted to say, as we were talking a little bit earlier in this, in this program about that brutal July 29th FBI attack assault on Chairman O'Malley Chatella and Deputy Chair Onazene Chatella and six or seven other properties of the Uhuru movement. And, you know, it was really serious and very intense. And, you know, I know that Unyanda Barrio and the African People's Socialist Party have very long-standing relationship and, and have always worked for this unity of African and Mexican or African indigenous people. And so, yeah, just tell us a little bit about, about that and the relationship with the party and the kind of work that Union has done, I know in the prisons and other places to, you know, to bring about that unity of the colonized. Yeah, that's some of the most important work that we've done. And I think a lot of the stuff we've learned from uh, the African People's Socialist Party and been able to do that work in conjunction and it's so important that we do that work because uh, there, there has been, you know, in the last 50 years since the uh, destruction of the, the power movements in our communities, there's been a big void, you know, um, that both uh, a void in leadership in our communities that I know that the, the African People's Socialist Party is trying to fill in, in the black community and we're trying to fill that in our community. And we have to show uh, that example of how we have to struggle together uh, how we have to help each other. We've learned tremendously from the party um, about many things. Um, and so we have to be able to show how black and brown people really can work together to build uh, political power for our community. You know, a lot of people, it, it's become trendy, I guess, in the last 10 years to say like black and brown unity, but almost just like almost just like a hashtag or something, you know, it's, it's not really concrete. And for me, like, I think that our organizations and obviously all of the work of the Solidarity Committee that supports so much of this work, it's so important for the people to see because it shows a concrete example of the type of work that our, our organizations are doing. Just today, I opened up the email about the work being done in, uh, in North St. Louis, the transformation community there. It's amazing. That is amazing work that's being done over there. And, and you know, the masses of our people have to see that, that when we organize ourselves, we can do so much. And when we organize together as black and brown people, you know, there's there's a long history of that in our history from, you know, from a peasant uprising, slave uprisings in, in Latin America and independence movements uh, to the struggles in, you know, political struggles of the 60s and 70s where we worked together uh, to even hell, the uprisings in 92 in L.A. where black and brown people were fighting the cops, you know, in the streets and, and just giving them hell. Like there's a long history of that. And I think that we have to provide that that organized and disciplined example of uh, of what can be. And, you know, I'll be honest, like, it, you know, it, it, it's difficult to do because a lot of us, you know, we have nine to fives, we have regular jobs, we also have families, we have our own responsibilities, but we understand the importance of, of building, of building these relationships, of, uh, of establishing something that will one day have the capacity to take out our enemy, our common enemy, and that is our oppressor. Wow, very exciting. Very exciting. And I, I just wanted to, to read from this beautiful statement, just very briefly, that Union de Barrio sent in, in solidarity with the African People's Socialist Party follow, you know, following these brutal raids and counterinsurgency. And you know, the Union wrote at the end of the message that 
they stand in solidarity with the struggle of the African People's Socialist Party and the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. We reject the reactionary slander and lies perpetrated by the FBI and its puppets. We stand firm by our decades-long relationship of principled solidarity and political unity with the APSP, its leadership, and the Uhuru movement in general. We reiterate this unconditional solidarity today and always. This criminal act of, of aggression against the African revolution will not go unchallenged, uh, unquote. And, and just to say that, you know, it's, of course, for us, for Jesse and I, it's an incredible honor to be organized under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and to, you know, and to just see how much um, and how long this incredibly profound relationship between the party and Union de Barrio and, and to have been exposed to, you know, just to, to the revolutionary struggle that this is the land, this land belongs to indigenous people, whether they speak Spanish or whether they speak an indigenous language, you know, that this is colonialism and, and just what an honor it has been to have seen and, and known Union del Barrio and see the incredible work that it's doing. And, you know, it just gives us more, <clears throat> you know, just more ammunition, so to speak, to, to fight for reparations and to continue to build genuine solidarity that the party has opened up to us by organizing in the white community. I hope you all will, <clears throat> excuse me, I hope you'll be out here and come for a visit in St. Louis soon. And yeah, just uh, really hope to be actually in Southern California very soon too, mm -hmm. I hope. Well, you all are always welcome here in uh, in the LA area. You all always have a home here and uh, hopefully I can make my way back to St. Louis. I've only been there once and uh, I really liked it when I went to go visit the party. But yeah, I just want to let you know, you know uh, following up on the statement that you just read from, and here in LA and in San Diego, we have, you know, we put not only ourselves, but all of our allies in the area, we put we put the word out and we're on call. We said that if anyone from the party, uh, anyone from the party or solidarity committee, anyone from the movement gets arrested because of these FBI attacks, that that same day, that same evening, we would go to the FBI build or the, uh, the what do you call it? The, um, the federal building here in Los Angeles and to, to denounce the anything like that. So. We, you know, uh, an attack on, on, on you all is an attack on us, a touch one, touch all. And we have to we have to be able to to have that real firm uh, solidarity because our enemy is a, is a very powerful one. And if we don't stand in, in, in unity, uh, you know, we, we we're going to have a hard time. And so we always uh, have supported the work of the party now for over 40 years and uh, we've learned tremendously and we still are. And uh, we continue to hope to learn more. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to visit you all soon now that this pandemic is coming to an end, hopefully. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Ron Gochez, political secretary of Union de Barrio based in Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be able to speak with you. And, yes, yeah, so just expressing our genuine solidarity with, with victory to Indigenous people, this is your land, Uhuru. Uhuru. Uhuru, comrades, we send a big hug to, to both of you uh, and to all the comrades in St. Louis and to everyone in the party. 
Uh, much love from uh, from the LA area. That was African People's Solidarity Committee Chairwoman Penny Hess and Uhuru Solidarity Movement Chair Jesse Neville talking to Union del Barrio's political secretary in LA, Ron Gochez, on October 21st, 2022. A big salute to Union del Barrio and comrade Ron Gochez, as well as Penny Hess and Jesse Neville for that interview. That's it for this episode of Reparations in Action, White Lies Shattered. We'll see you next time. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with Black Power. My name is Jamie Simpson. We'd like to thank our team of volunteers. Our sound engineer is Robert May, who also composes our theme music. Our research coordinator is Deidre Martin. The show is produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to the director of Agiprop for the African People's Socialist Party, Akile Anayi, as well as Black Power 96.3 FM station manager, DJ Eddie Maltzby. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to join our volunteer team, please email us at ria at blackpower96.org. That's ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to Chairman Omalia Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party, without whose relentless leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible.